and love is all that I can give to you. Love is more than just a game for two. Two in love can make it. Take my heart and please don't break it. Love was made for me and Welcome to Love Savers Radio, ministering the blessings of covenant. This is Walter and Sandy Fox from Love Savers Ministry, called by God to minister the blessings of the marriage covenant by enriching, encouraging, strengthening, and praying for the healing of marriages, especially marriages in crisis. Our program is sponsored by Living Water Church, located at 69 Industrial Road in Wainscott, under the leadership of Pastor Joe Kelly and his lovely wife, Margaret Kelly. Sunday services are at 10 a.m. with a pre-service prayer meeting at 9.30 a.m. Pastor Joe invites you to come and be refreshed. For more information, please call 631-537-2120. That's 631-537-2120. Let's talk about marriage. This is Sandy Fox from Love Savers Ministry inviting you to call us today if you want prayer for your marriage. We pray for the healing of marriages, especially those in crisis. We have faith that God can heal marriages because God healed ours after seven years of divorce. Gary Chapman, the author of The Five Love Languages, said this about Love Savers Ministry. And let me encourage you in what you're doing because I think these kind of shows which deal with really nitty-gritty stuff in relationships Uh and really help the listeners. So we're here to help. Call us today at 631-604-6397. That's 631-604-6397. Or email us at lovesavers1 at aol.com. Our website is lovesaversministry.com. And remember, love never fails. Sandy talks with Dave Carter, who wrote the newest edition of his book, Torn Asunder, Recovering from an Extramarital Affair. We believe this is a sensitive subject that needs to be discussed within our Christian community. The wildfire of adultery in the church continues to spread, fanned by the media, fed by the debris of broken families, and sparked by a culture where values have disappeared from our schools, governments, and the so-called courts of justice in America, under the banner that says, In God We Trust. The question is, what God are they referring to? Dave's book, Torn Asunder, has paved a clear and achievable path to help couples navigate from despair and chaos to ultimate healing and reconciliation. Regardless of how mild or severe the betrayal is, this book has proven that if both parties will do the work Anything is possible through the grace of God. Torn Asunder is biblical, well-researched, practical, and above all, a hopeful book that will change lives and inspire us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Let's listen. Hi, Dave. Hi. Today we're going to discuss your book, Torn Asunder. And um, how frequent do you think is this problem of the affair, and do you think it is widening, and if so, why? Well, uh, first of all, the frequency has been pretty stable among Christian couples, 
somewhere since the late 80s, about 40% of Christian marriages will experience infidelity sometime before the one of the spouses reaches the age of 40. Mm-hmm. And in the secular world, uh, women slightly less, about 50% of women, admit to infidelity while married. About, depending on what survey you read, 63 to 67% of men admit to it. And the fastest growing rate of infidelity in America is among young married women married seven years or less. Unbelievable. What are some of the circumstances, do you think, that trigger affairs and some of the high-risk factors? Well, first of all, circumstances, um, the most frequent time period for first-time adulteries, fully 50% of all first-time adulteries happen in the nine months of pregnancy or the first year after delivery. The single most frequent decade of men committing adultery is the decade of 31 to 40. The most frequent uh, experience or um, stressor, if you want to say that, is um, a cluster that creates the need for comfort and distraction. Almost all first-time adulteries happen after two years of uh, strained and um, extreme stress for this couple. Not might not be the same trigger, but it's been hard on them. Financial issues, health issues, legal issues, uh, financial issues, upside down in the house, uh, graduate school moves, residencies, you, uh, those kinds of uh, stressful experiences accumulate over two years, and first-time adulterers almost always have a two-year high-stress period of time in front of them. Uh-huh. Because you mentioned that one of the most important motivators of any affair is the deep desire to feel nurtured and loved unconditionally. Yeah. Uh-huh. True. It's true, but when you go through stress, yeah. you and your spouse will process it differently. And usually what happens, one spouse wants to get through with it, move on, leave it behind, trying to overcome it, whatever it is, and the other spouse still needs time to process it, work through it, and turns to an outside resource for that kind of help and support, somebody who understands them. It could be a coworker, colleague, a ministry team, worship team companion. You teach in the same Sunday school church setting. Yeah, right. uh, somebody yes. else. Because um, there's a theory, I have a proximity, and just like you were saying, one has to be careful when in close proximity, right, to be aware of chemistry. I think you have to be aware of what's going on inside of you yes. when you're in those kinds of uh, close proximities to people, especially that you admire. Right. and look up to, and maybe who are quite competent in an area of proficiency. So, yeah, uh, 50% of all first-time pastoral infidelities happened with a person that they qualified or classified as a friend. Uh-huh. So Christians get involved with people they know. Right. But yet we can't be totally paranoid about that either. <laughs> we have to be careful. <laughs> hey, set them on one side of the pews, the central row. That'll help. <laughs> <laughs> 
anyway. Are there no, any- it won't. Yeah. It won't. Uh, you just have to be aware of what's going on inside of you right. and what you are feeling and your own attraction. Now, I grew up with Woodstock and uh, the sexual revolution in college. So uh-huh. I understand how this works. So it's, it's very interesting. You, you actually, I still believe you can have friends of the opposite sex. I really uh-huh. do believe that's possible. I have female friends on my church staff here uh, that I'm very close to. Right. But there are three criteria that turn a friendship into an emotional infidelity. And many times people step over that threshold and still call this uh, relationship a friendship, and it's not. Uh It's an emotional affair. Uh So you want to hear what those are? Yes, tell us about the emotional (laughs) affair. I don't want to bore you. I can talk about this stuff all day. Yeah, no, um, no, I'm sure no one's bored. Tell us about the emotional affair. Because they feel that, well, I mean, intimacy didn't happen in the normal way you think, so it's not so bad, but it really could be very and then lead to it. But go ahead. Well, I have treated pastors who have had 30-year emotional affairs, never touched the other woman, system, anything, never been suggestive, etc. but they're emotional affairs because the first criteria, the friendship becomes a mood-altering experience, just like alcohol, just like smoking a cigarette. It's a mood-altering experience. You get an email from them, your mood changes. You get a text, your mood changes. You hear the voice on the phone, your mood changes. Uh, that's the first criteria. The second criteria is the conversations moves from outside to inside, what's going on inside of you rather than what's going on outside of you. It moves from professional to personal. Uh That's the second one. And the third point or the third criteria is you hide it. You do it in secret because you know it means too much and you would pay for it if somebody else found out. Uh Uh-huh. Those are good points. Are there individual or marital styles that are prone to infidelity? Oh, yeah. There's some old research out there, but nevertheless, I think some of it still holds up. It's done in the um, late 80s, early 90s. And basically, among the Christian population, uh, those couples who don't really work through differences the kind of conflict avoidant, they think conflict is bad, Right. is one pattern. And the second major pattern is intimacy avoidant. They function well together. They're task-oriented. They might own a business together. They raise three great kids together. But when those kids are gone, they sit down at the breakfast table that morning and they say to the person across the breakfast table, who and the heck are you? <laughs> right. <laughs> the emptiness syndrome, yeah. Yeah. So we see those patterns all the time uh, in marriages that are especially prone to somebody paying attention or somebody listening about your differences and uh, being able to hear you think and feel differently without being offended, fighting over something. Right. So, yeah. In the book, you talk about different levels or classes of infidelity. Could you explain those a bit? Well, (laughs) I always thought adultery was adultery was adultery. 
until I started working on this 30-some years ago and uh, began to quickly realize that at least in the 21st century, it's very different. But what was even more astounding to me was in the Old Testament scriptures, we have uh, illustrations of every single one of these differences. So it's been around this literary generational stuff for years and years, thousands of years. Right, yeah, I the remember one night. you yeah, talking about uh, David and Bathsheba, and now, you know, first it was that great passion, but then she just became one of his wives later. Yeah, yeah. Now, there's that one-night stand thing. You don't even know the person you get involved with. Alcohol is almost always a factor in this infidelity. You have dinner together at a conference or something, drink too much, go back to somebody else's ho hotel room, that kind of thing. That, that's a real common one. The second one is what we call a really emotionally entangled, addictive uh -huh. affair. Could go on. And a great illustration years. of that yeah. is Samson and Delilah, you know. Yeah. Uh, as far as we know, they were never sexual with each other, but we have this picture of them where his head is in her lap, and they're talking, and he cannot leave her, even though he knows she is trying to kill him. He can't leave. So they're just terribly emotionally entwined in each other's lives. The third class is not really an affair at all. Um, it doesn't have any emotional attachment to it between the two partners. A better term for it would be sexual addiction or sexual compulsivity. Uh -huh. And in the Old Testament, Eli's sons practice that. They just take women out of a lineup at the tent of sacrifice and take them into another tent, have sex with them, and turn them loose. And so God killed those two sons of Eli, and actually God took Eli's life prematurely because he wouldn't stop the practice. Uh -huh. So that corruption uh, has been around for generations again. We, we treat that very differently. That, is, that kind of uh, infidelity is not about uh, the marriage. We can talk about that later if you want. Okay. Class four is what we call uh, a deficit in the marriage affair, meaning... This affair meets one very specific deficit in the marriage. And these people involved in this affair have no outside interest. They, I mean, they don't do lunch together. They don't call. They don't text. They don't stay in touch except outside of this shared experience that they really enjoy together. And, they, and their spouses don't enjoy it, such as they're on a, a cycle club or a hiking club or a worship team, or they have a ministry of the poor, or they do something they're very passionate about, but their spouse is not interested in. And while in that ministry or in that activity, their relationship begins to build and will become inappropriate eventually uh, okay. over time. Uh, and then we got a class five we've already talked about, which is the emotional uh, infidelity, where it starts out as a friendship, usually, but that's not the only way it develops. Mm -hmm. It also comes out of your history with an old girlfriend, a boyfriend found on Facebook or classmates.com or something like that. We've got to talk about that. That's pretty interesting these days. Yes. Talk. Do you want to talk more about that? Yeah, yeah. Go ahead. Um, basically, uh, Adolescence is such an impressionable time yes. on your life. Most uh -huh. of us can remember, unless you really were promiscuous, 
you can remember every uh, boy, every girl you kissed passionately when you're in adolescence. The memory is stored in your brain. Now, we don't dwell on that, but if I ask you to list all the girls you kissed passionately in high school and college, you probably could come up with a pretty good list 40 years later. Uh Even if you can't remember your best friend's name when you see him at the coffee shop. (laughs) (laughs) It's, It's the affection, the emotional component that stores that, the infatuation. It just stores it in your brain. So uh-huh. here's what happens. You are up late at night with your little tyke who's sick. You've been rocking up, finally got him calmed down. They finally go to sleep. You're wound up. You can't do, uh, get, get back to sleep. So you get up, you go to the computer, you say, I wonder what ever happened to Susie. So <laughs> you spend two hours on the and you get 10,000 hits, but you finally find that Susie. And then it's very platonic. Oh, gosh, it's been so long since we talked. You know, how many kids you have? Your husband, oh, he looks so great. You guys have such a great family. Boom, boom, boom. Here's, yeah. here's the outcome of that conversation. If you stay in touch with an old girlfriend or a boyfriend on Facebook for 30 days, you will become confused about whether or not you married the right person. Oh. Because that relationship begins to generate or recall the old infatuation. Uh-huh. If you stay in touch with them an additional 30 days, you will be finding ways to meet and sleep with them. Zero to 60 is all you have. Wow. And the infatuation will overwhelm you and take you down. The old girlfriends and boyfriends are not just friendships. They are living threats uh-huh. to the marriage. And you need to be extremely careful. I don't care if they gained a hundred pounds. <laughs> when you see them, you don't see them as they look now. You see them with what memories and infatuation degenerate inside of you from when you were a kid. Uh-huh. So if you want, if you're a guy, I don't know whether you're into cars or not, but I'll give you an illustration. I'm not a real big car guy, but yeah. I love cars too. On the other hand, you can buy cars that you were in high school, that you drove in high school and college, yeah. and you maybe paid two or $3,000 for those cars. You can go to auctions in Arizona and pay $300,000 for that very same car today. Uh-huh. And it's not near the automobile that automobiles are today. The way they're manufactured, corner, run, everything else. But why do you pay so much? Because it gives you great feelings, okay? It yeah. brings back all that infatuation. Same with the music. Uh-huh. Every generation has this music that falls back. Right. You don't yeah. forget that stuff. Yes. Anyway, what about disclosure? How much do you tell? What about questions, details? Is it necessary um, regarding that, the affair? Well, um, First of all, let me start with this. Uh, you can only forgive what you know. You can't forgive what you don't know. Right. Okay. Secondly, the goal in every situation, the initial goal in every situation, whether the marriage stays together or not, is to restore respect and trust between the two parents so that even if they should divorce, the kids stand a chance later on that they can invite parents to all, both parents to all their entire life experiences, births, graduations, marriages, uh-huh. and feel secure that mom and dad won't make a scene 
and try to show everybody how angry and hurt they still are. Right. So if you do that, then I tell you full disclosure. I, let's just use the male and the wife. The male has the affair and the wife um, doesn't. She's a faithful partner. Uh-huh. I tell her, first session, ask any question you want. You have a right to know. Mm-hmm. If your financial planner lost $100,000 and called you up for another 100000 to invest in the fund, you wouldn't give it to him. Right. Until you knew how he lost it, where it is, how he intends to get it back, how you make sure that this won't happen again. Right. And that's what you're going to be asked to do. You're going to be asked to rebuild respect for your husband and trust. And you can't do that till you know what he did, how he did it, when he did it, and answer all those questions. I don't want you, even if you stay married, to think in your bed some night mm-hmm. when you're making love to each other. I wonder if he did that with her. Right. Yeah. So... You ask any question you want, the more you know, the more you have to forgive. But to the degree you can forgive, to that degree you can rebuild respect for your spouse. And to the degree you rebuild respect, you can start rebuilding trust. And to the degree you rebuild trust, you can start rebuilding love. So it goes forgiveness, respect, trust, and love. And if you don't have those middle two things, you don't have a marriage. You might have a piece of paper, but you do not have a marriage. Could you talk to us a bit about what you're talking about, the healing process of that? How do couples get started? What kind of stages will they go through? How do they rebuild trust, et cetera? Okay. (laughs) It's not as complicated as it might sound if you stay focused on the task. Uh And the issue among most therapists or with most therapists, if they've had no specific training to recover from affairs. Uh, betrayal is a trauma. And so you start out uh, really treating this as a trauma recovery, not as marital therapy, standard marital therapy. So and you begin to realize and look through your history. The first set of monologues, conversation exercises is involved with a marital history that they both contribute to on paper. The second step is to begin to talk about their biographical experiences uh, across three uh, age gaps, birth to nine, 10 to 15, 16 to 21, because those are all really critical developmental ages. And so they do these talks back and forth, looking at their developmental process that they're brought, they brought to the marriage. Second one, they begin to take a look at what, hap- what their family of origin contributed to their life, when, especially when in the area of conflict and power and control issues and how old they are on the inside because family of origin development is very influential in that and how they've patterned their marriage after their parents' marriage or in reaction to their parents' marriage. By week three, we're working on the start of a two-tiered forgiveness exercise. No spouse is perfect. Both have contributed to the marital deterioration over time. And so they begin to work on their contributions to creating the pain that's in this marriage, and apart from what their spouse has done. And then we move in after that affair letter, that part of the affair letter is written and read to each other. The one spouse writes a betrayal letter. And on those betrayal letters, there will be somewhere in a first-time adultery, somewhere between 40 and 60 items he will list. And we follow best research practices when it comes to forgiveness. So it's almost clinical, very sterile. And he's going to list this. He's going to rank it. He's going to write it and he's going to read it to her. And then we move in 
to the rules that are necessary to rebuild trust after that kind of request for forgiveness. They're very focused, very few that he has to practice. And then we move into what we call the good-bad split in the marriage. This marriage is not all bad. It's the bad part that brought you in, but it's not all bad. So we look at the good history as well, especially if you're going to separate. Well, if you're going to stay together, too, you need to remind yourself of the good history. And then we do a final project that kind of wraps all this up over four weeks. And we're, I'm done. I see couples 12 to 14 sessions. Uh-huh. Well, you know, it. I remember reading um, in your book that you say when the revelation of this is uh, you're first confronted with it, that you're to respond with compassion. And later, though, you talk about how it's very important to express real anger at mm. this mm. happening or you, you mm. can't get through all these other steps well, know. in the compassion component comes yeah. in the sense that this, if this is a bad marriage to start with, uh-huh. you're just lucky you didn't do this first. That's the compassion rate. Uh-huh. Because people have constant temptation in this culture uh-huh. to get involved with someone, either from their past or someone at work. Men and women are doing more and more and more together. So... <laughs> Everybody is going to face this temptation on multiple levels in multiple periods of time. Or they're, they're dead and in denial because this happens, okay? Yes. Anyway, so, we're going to have to leave, but um, what kind of results do you have? What kind of hope can you offer couples who might be listening? If you will work through this marriage, when you come in and see me, I... I tell you in the first, I don't know if you can see this merge or not. You will know, though, by the end of this. You will be, it will be very clear to you. I love saving marriages. I got into this to save marriages. So you need to go through this whether you stay married or not. And I would encourage you to work through the forgiveness, respect, and trust. There's very specific exercises in the Torn Asunder workbook that I designed for couples who can't find therapists to help them or to use with the therapist or with the pastor. So there are resources out there, and I would say to you, jump in. It'll scare you half to death. This is your part of your story. You need to know it. Don't cut and run. You'll just drag all the unfinished business with you into another relationship. Stay right where you are, and for the sake of your children, work through this old marriage before you decide to leave it or decide to stay in it. Right. That is good advice. And... We thank you so very much for sharing so much on this very sensitive subject. Um, And we'll say goodbye and God bless for now, Dave. And take care and we'll talk again soon, okay? Okay, thank you. Mm -hmm. Bye-bye. Let's Talk About Marriage, sponsored by Love Savers Ministry, ministering the blessings of covenant. A psychiatrist at Harvard University Medical School, specializing in the emotional development in children, recently quoted the latest research on the consequences of divorce and family disintegration. 90% of children from divorced homes suffered from an acute sense of shock when the separation occurred, including profound grieving and irrational fears. The study concluded that divorce brings such intense loneliness to children that its pain is difficult to describe or even contemplate. 
divorce is devastating, especially to children. We understand that divorce has become a popular way to deal with marital conflict in the times we are living, but there is a better way. Your marriage can be saved. Your children will thank you. If you want prayer for your marriage, please call Walter and Sandy Fox at 917-804-5034. That's 917-804-5034. And remember, love never fails. 1 Corinthians 13.8 L is for the way you look at me O is for the only one I see V is very, very extraordinary E is even more than anyone that you adore Can love is all that I can give to you Love is more than just a game for two True and love can make it Take my heart and please don't break it Love was made for me and you Love was made for me and you Love was made for me and 